Have you heard the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished? It's an interesting phrase, right? And I was doing a little bit of research this last week, wondering, you know, where did that start? And uh, the scholars are a little, the literary scholars are a little bit divided as to who was the specific person. The concept has been around for quite some time. And in fact, some suggest that the original concept probably started with the bitter disillusionment of Job. No good deed goes unpunished. When you think of Job, you think of pure good deeds. But his life seemed to be punishment after punishment from God. Last week we saw how Peter and John did a good thing. They found a beggar who had been lame for quite some time, and they healed him. Now, beyond just the physical miracle, which in and of itself is significant, think about what this does to this particular man's life. Now he has the opportunity to get a job. Now perhaps he could get married or provide for his family. Now perhaps he could have children. He can work. He can do things that a lot of us take for granted. And so his healing was, in a very real sense, a resurrection, a coming to life. And when Peter and John give this man life, you would expect everyone should be thrilled and everyone should be happy. The crowd was astonished, as we talked about last week, but they were astonished, perhaps in a wrong-minded way. Perhaps they were thinking, if Peter and John have this kind of power, maybe if I get close to Peter and John, they'll kind of share some of that power with me, and maybe some of that will rub off. And so we talked about how Peter was clicked to clarify Quick to clarify that it was not their human power that saved this man. You know, the word in Greek for save and to heal is the same one, uh, depending on the context. And in a sense, by healing him, Jesus saved him. And so it wasn't their power that healed this man, but it was the power of the name of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And then Peter encourages the amazed crowd to repent to change their lives and adopt this new way of thinking, this new way of looking at life through the power of resurrection. And he kept on preaching about resurrection through the rest of that day. And no doubt he pointed at that man and he pointed to that example and said, this is what God wants to give every single one of you, a new life, a new chance, and a new hope. And we read that thousands accepted that message. We know that there were 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, but now we read in chapter 4 that there were 5,000 men. And so the movement is expanding, and the movement is growing, and more and more people are getting excited about this possibility of new life, new hope, following Jesus. But when you live in a controlled context like first century Judea or Israel, 
And there's this move among masses of people. It causes some, especially those in power, to be a little concerned and a little bit worried. What's happening? What does this mean? And not only from the religious community, the Jewish religious community, how are the Romans going to take this? So by nightfall, that same day, Peter and John are under arrest. The next morning, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. This is the high priest, some of his family, representatives of various religious sects, but specifically the Sadducees. There were 71 of these rulers that were convened to then pass judgment on Peter and John. The historians tell us that they would sit in a half circle and the one who is accused would be brought before and set before them. So Peter and John wake up, they're brought before the Sanhedrin, and now they're facing this semicircle of 71 men who aren't very happy and who feel threatened not just because of their religious power, but also because of what this might mean for the Romans and what they might do. And that's where we're going to pick up our text in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 5. If you're looking for it in your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Before you do so, or while you're doing so, rather, uh, let me just point out, I've mentioned before that we use a lectionary, which is a list of scriptures that has been determined and shared to preach through. We're using one that's a four-year calendar, and this four-year schedule leaves the summers open. And so... From the day of Pentecost, we're kind of on our own, as it were, through the summer until we get to the fall. And then we'll pick up with the lectionary again. So what I decided to do was, since we had already been in the book of Acts uh, leading up to Pentecost, I decided to go ahead and continue. So we're going to continue the rest of the summer, different texts in the book of Acts. Mostly we'll follow the order that we find in the Bible. Uh, Some of the texts we've already looked at, so we'll kind of skip over. But today... Last week we were in Acts chapter 3, today we're in 4, and we'll continue on. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. The next day the council and all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we have done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me state, clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, a quote from Psalm 118, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be 
saved. Word of the Lord. So when the Sanhedrin brings Peter and John before them, they didn't really want to know how the miracle took place. They weren't interested in the mechanics. But what they really are wanting to know, where did you get the power to do this? Who authorized you to do this? And in a real basic sense, what they were asking, what right do you have to act in this way? Who do you think you are? Peter and John shouldn't have been surprised by this question. Everything that's happening to them had already happened to Jesus. The Pharisees were constantly asking Jesus the same thing. What right do you have to forgive sins? Don't you know that only God can forgive sins? Who do you think you are? And they were actually right. (laughs) Jesus did have and does have the right to forgive sins, to heal and to love people because he is the beloved son of God. And while Peter gives a similar answer, it's by the power of Jesus, it's in his name, by his authority, and by his power, this man was raised. We also know that it was the power of the Holy Spirit working in Peter and through this movement that was actually spreading like wildfire. I think it was week before last we had that fire over uh, off of Chrome and they shut down the section of Chrome Avenue from 88th up to 8th Street. And, and, and Catherine and I, I spoke at West Broward on Wednesday evening for their summer series and we drove up Chrome and there were scorch marks on both sides of Chrome Avenue. The fire had jumped over. It's a spreading fire And there were concerns about trying to get it. And thankfully, uh, uh, the good Lord sent rain and, and helped out. But this movement of Jesus followers, of individuals filled and motivated by the power of the Holy Spirit, kept spreading. And so these religious leaders are fighting an uphill battle because really they were fighting against God himself. And what he was wanting to do. In the Gospels, the primary opponents of Jesus and the work of God were the Pharisees. In the book of Acts, it shifts a little bit more to the Pharisees for two specific reasons. One for doctrinal. The the, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And a lot of what happens from Pentecost on is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that resurrection then opens the door for us as we are baptized to be resurrected with Jesus in life and then await our resurrection at the end of life. But they also were the most aristotic, no, aristotic, no, aristocracy. Yeah, that one, that one, yeah. It's been a long morning, friends. <laughs> um, uh, they, they were part of the aristocracy. See, that's you just get around it, right? I do the same thing in Spanish. Whenever I find a word I can't say, I just find another way to say it. Um, I, I say I do that frequently. They were the party that was most connected to Rome. They had the most to gain, 
and they had the most to lose. They were the wealthy, the movers and the shakers of uh, life in Israel. They were politically connected and they wanted to maintain that relationship with Rome because it benefited them personally. And so they were going to keep peace at all costs. And now these uneducated bumpkins are threatening their way of life and the status quo. It's almost this David and Goliath kind of situation. You know, the Greek word for uneducated that's used here, it's a little bit strong. Idiotes. Yeah. Idiotes means someone who is taught by themselves. They don't have any exterior kind of influence. And later that with time came to mean someone who didn't have much learning. But these two men, as uneducated as they were, had the bravery and the courage to stand before the Sanhedrin and speak about what they believed, what they had experienced, and about where their trust was. This showdown is not between the Sanhedrin and Peter and John. This is a showdown between the ruling religious leaders of the day with all of their beliefs and structures and interpretations and traditions and this new wind that the Holy Spirit is, this new fire, this new power that's coming on God's people. It was coming upon these Jews and now they're operating in ways that are different. And the real question, at least to me it seems, is that does God have the right to move and act in ways different than how he used to? Does God have that right? The Jewish leaders would say, no, he does not. God is confined to our structures and the way we are doing it, the way it has been revealed to us for century after century. And yet Jesus came to say, there's a new wind blowing. And God's kingdom is going to move in directions that are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And the standards by which we judge people are going to look a little bit different. What is truly important is going to be different. The weightier matters of the law that have been, over, that have been overlooked and neglected for so many years are now going to come to the forefront. And really, when you think about it, it wasn't a new change. It was a change back to what God had said in the very beginning. The Gentiles will be a part of the kingdom. Oh, how the Jewish people rejected that. But then the biblical preachers and authors point out, yeah, but God said that back in Genesis chapter 12. <laughs> and through Isaiah and through prophet after prophet that God wanted all the nations to be a part of this huge tree, this huge kingdom that he was creating. God has been wanting this all along, but the Jews couldn't see it. God has been wanting to take care of, of widows and orphans ever since the beginning, but the Jews found a way not to have to do that. And God says, 
let's get back to what is truly important. God was always more concerned about people following him with their hearts than offering sacrifices. But it's a whole lot easier to offer a sacrifice. And people just pounded the altar with sacrifices. Thousands and thousands of animals. And God says, what I want is obedience. I want your hearts to truly follow me. The weightier matters of the law are what's really important to God. But the Jews would go in their backyard and they would calculate how much the herb or plant they had and take off a tenth of that every week. And God and Jesus and the apostles say, stop, (laughs) you're missing the point. And unfortunately for many people, God's people in many ways and religious people and Christian people have missed the point on so many different things for so many years. And now we're in a world that doesn't want to hear our point. It's too late. (laughs) You, you, You lost your chance. And now, at least in American society, everybody's point is the same. And so our voice has been silenced. Society is becoming increasingly intolerant of the Christian voice. And fewer and fewer Americans are wanting and willing to talk about religion and talk about their relationship with God and talk about Jesus. So what do we do? We could just pack up and call it a day. Do you know what an elevator speech is? Some of you in business might have heard something like this. It's where you summarize, you imagine yourself getting onto an elevator and someone says, hey, Tell me, before I get to my floor, tell me why I should buy this product or why I should invest in this uh, this company or tell me what's really important and good about this. And so you've got from the first floor to the fourth floor, 30 seconds, 45 seconds to boom, give your spiel. And if it's interesting enough and if it piques the interest, they'll hold the door open. Say, wait, wait, okay, let let, let me hear a little bit more about this. Come on with me for a second. 30 to 45 seconds. Could you describe your life in 30 to 45 seconds? I I do that in classes, and we've done it with new members. I do it in my Bible classes when I'm teaching different institutes. I say, okay, you've got 45 seconds. The clock is going to run whenever I say go to tell me your life story. Go. Boom. (laughs) A whole lifetime. And the older you get... You know, it was funny. Before I went to West Broward, uh, the secretary there, Risa, uh, asked me to send a biography. And I told her, I said, you know, Risa, it's kind of funny because the older I get, it seems the shorter my biography gets. Uh, (laughs) Because the things that I used to would have wanted to say were really important. It's like, yeah, I'm a husband. I'm a a father. I'm a, a grandfather. And uh, I love preaching for this church. And that was pretty much what I sent. Um, well, 45 seconds. 
If you had 45 seconds to say, why do you go to the Sunset Church of Christ? Why are you a member here? Of all the churches you could go in Miami, why do you go here? 45 seconds. We're at the first floor. You got to the fourth floor. Go. What would it be? What is it about our life that we would want to share, that we would want to connect with someone else? See, this is Peter's elevator speech. It's less than 45 seconds. We want you to know that this is what this is all about. Resurrection. Jesus resurrected and now he gives us the opportunity. This is the work of God. When we were in Argentina, one of the men we baptized was a part of what was called uh, Sociedad de Fomento. It was kind of like a gathering of friends and they would meet once a week and have lunch and share life. They did some civic things. It was kind of like an unofficial, informal, independent rotary club. And so Juan invited me a couple of times. To be honest, I went for the food. But also to build relationships. I wanted to support Juan, and I also wanted to build relationships with new people. But they had some strict rules. Three things that you could not talk about. You can probably guess at least two of them. Religion, number one. Cannot talk about religion. Number two, politics. Cannot talk about politics. Any guess what number three was? Soccer. (laughs) As one who knows the Southern Cone. Oh, they would have some knockdown, drag out battles over all three of those. I mean, they had to put those rules in place because what they found was when people talked about them, they talked sometimes with food and with fists and with angry words. (laughs) Well... In our world, let's say you live in a world where it's not permitted to talk about Jesus. What do you do? It's not welcome. The pandemic has made it even worse. You know, this is where going back to what Scripture really says is is actually pretty helpful. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should always have a ready answer. For anyone who asks us for the hope that lives within us. It doesn't say that we take the initiative to talk. We live in such a way that someone says, whoa, that was weird. Why'd you do that? I'm glad you asked. And let me tell you why. And so if I were living back in Argentina again, and if I were with Brother Juan and we were at this Sociedad de Fomento, I would find a way to do something so generous, so off the wall, that every one of those older men would sit there and think, what is wrong with this guy? And it would generate the question, what's wrong with you? Where did this come from? Why did you do that? And then I would be able to give my elevator speech, 45 seconds, I'm so glad you asked. And that just might open the door for another conversation. 
we first prepare our speech, be sure we know what it is that motivates us to follow God, to be a part of this congregation, to live in such a way that we honor him. And then we act in such extravagant ways that someone asks us, who are you? And what do you think you're doing? And our response is, I'm so glad you asked. And then we can share the good news of a resurrected Jesus.